Hi, I'm Shaylee Shibaxi Ritchie. And I'm her co-host and sister, Kosha Baxi Karstens. Spoiler alert, we are sisters. And best friends. We grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were certainly loved. We had lots of friends, but we never felt like we really fit in. We started to realize that there were a lot of people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was the seed for this podcast. Then, during the 2020 election cycle, we watched now Vice President Kamala Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence. We saw what a badass she was, and we got inspired. We wanted to hear, share, and amplify the voices of everyone who has felt other. We wanted to give everyone a platform, regardless of who they are, who they love, or where they're from, to reclaim their power and their place, to stand up and say, I am speaking. Hello, my name is Eric Carrera, and I am speaking. Hello, Eric. Hi, Eric. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Before we started recording, we realized that we all live basically within like 10 miles of each other. So you're in you're in Chicago. You're in the uh, southern side of Chicago. Tell us a little bit more. Yeah, I was born and raised in Chicago. I'm actually from the north side. Um, I lived around the Wrigleyville, Wrigleyville area, uh, but I've always been a Sox fan. So um, that was going to be one of my questions. Was like, okay, so Cubs or Sox? Yeah. <laughs> uh, diehard Sox fan. Um, I grew up on the north side um, up until high uh, until I graduated high school. And um, went to Northern Illinois University, and um, our sister did that. Our sister went to Northern. Yeah, I didn't uh, participate, so to say. So um, (laughs) the other activities uh, ended up getting kicked out of Northern, and then I got left with an ultimatum by my mother, saying that you either stay home, go to community college, get a job. Um, That's what you're going to have to do. Um, and I did not want to do that. <laughs> I was 19. I said, I, I need to do something else, find something else. Um, when I went to Northern, I ended up rooming with my best friend, which is probably the one thing I shouldn't have done. <laughs> and um, he ended up joining the military a couple months before uh, I got kicked out of Northern. And I said, you know what? Maybe I'll go talk to a recruiter. I'll see what's going on. And um, I know he did infantry and a couple other of my buddies went the same route, but I knew my mother would kill me if I ever went infantry. So I was looking for different jobs. I uh, came across combat engineer and the description for combat engineer was building fortifications and clearing minefields. Um, I always loved building things. I'm like, you know, it seems a safe enough job, um, but uh, I'm that sorry, kind clear. Of- Clearing minefields sounded like a safe job. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, when the Iraq war was going on, that job description changed. That job description was mainly for Vietnam and World War II. And um, the Iraq war was mainly about roadside bombs and IEDs. And since combat engineers knew a lot about explosives, they tasked the combat engineers to find these roadside bombs. Um, so it did, it did get a little bit switched over when I decided to join. 
Wow. Yeah. That that is a, a, the true definition of bait and switch, right? Which is like, this looks like something I could do. And I, I mean, yes, I understand. I also feel the same way when Coach is like, uh, clearing minefields. But I assume they don't just send you out there with a stick to poke stuff. Like, there's a bunch of, you know, equipment that helps you find the mines and deactivate the mines. Or I, you might not even need to do that. You might just need to say, here. And then you keep walking around. But it, you're absolutely right. In the Iraq War, it went from style of warfare really changed. Um, and so what would have been maybe a little bit, I won't say a little bit safer, but may have been a little bit more controlled, became largely uncontrolled during during that combat. When were you there? Which which years were you in overseas? Um, I wanted to backtrack when you talked about poking with the stick. Um, that Yeah, that actually is true. Uh, so Wait, that's what they made you do is poke stuff with the stick? Yeah, so we, we would have equipment that would clear lanes for minefields, but sometimes we wouldn't have that equipment. Um, we would have metal detectors, so we would actually have to use the metal detectors, and there's certain ways to detect things into the ground. Um, so when we actually find something in the ground, we have a probe and everything, and we poke so we have to find the actual dimensions of whatever is actually in the ground. So it's actually us laying on the ground, moving the dirt, poking with a uh, probe to see what is actually underneath. Um, but uh, yeah, that was part of my basic training that I actually had to do that. And um, when we switched to finding IEDs, equipment did change. The tactics really didn't change as much as that we would have these up armored vehicles that were a little bit more up armored than your regular Humvee or anything like that. Um, weren't unpenetrable. Um, they were just kind of more well, bomb resistant, they would say. Uh, most of the times it wouldn't. But um, our job was basically going down the road five miles an hour and looking out the window. Um, since we knew explosives and what to kind of look for, we could pinpoint things. But the thing is, is that um, my first deployment was in Baghdad in 2006. The roads are filled with trash. It's many landfills, hard to detect anything really. And a lot of times these IDs underneath these trash piles. Um, so that's why we were going five miles an hour down the road. But we would do this literally every single day clearing these routes and we would actually memorize these trash piles so every time we saw these trash piles like moved or touched in a certain way we would actually look at nine, nine times out of ten there would actually be something there we would always get um like vips that come with us and they say oh well why don't, we, why don't we look at that why don't we look at that he's like well that trash has been the same like that for the last two three weeks <laughs> And then they look at us weird, like, really? Like, you actually memorize this? I'm like, yeah, you do something every day. Mm -hmm. You see it every day. You understand something is being moved or messed with. And we just got that, I guess, what muscle memory, I guess mm -hmm. it is. And that's how we do our jobs. Wow. All right, so I want to walk back a little bit. So you decided that... Uh straight up college was not for you and that you wanted to do something else and you decided to enroll in the army is that correct yes okay 
just because I'm not super familiar with all the different branches of the military and what would be where. I realized that like you weren't fl flying planes, so you were in the Air Force, but I didn't know any, you know, sort of like but where the Navy else? has pilots too. You know, like the Army has like they all have sim like they have overlap. So I'm like, okay, so you're in the Army. So I'm really curious, right? Your mom said that she, you said that your mom would have killed you, quote unquote if you had gone into the infantry, but she didn't kill you for doing this. This was fine. She actually tried to stop me from the military. She even went to the recruiter and said, no, it's my only son. You can't take my only son. Uh, I says, well, if he volunteers, there's really nothing you could do about it. And you were 19. You weren't like 17. Yes. Right. You were an adult. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, yeah. So she was really heartbroken at that point of, uh, there was really nothing she could have done. And I'm like, well, I have to go. I can't be here anymore. Mm -hmm. It was hard on her. and But that's something I had to do. Um, uh, when I joined, I got the options of picking where I wanted to go. I actually picked Germany. So I ended up going to Germany. I really needed to get away. So I tried to find... I've been to Germany a bunch of times when I was little. I have family. I used to go on vacation there. Um, so I mean, it was, the culture was a little bit more familiar with, so I decided to go there and I got, they granted my wish. The world of the military is very, very, um, unfamiliar for Kosha, my sister and I, for Kosha and I, for any number of reasons. But one of the big ones is that in India, there, are, you know, sort of the caste system is good or bad. You can say whatever you want about that is that so only certain castes are have traditionally engaged in certain types of activities. Um, and the castes that we come, we're not, we don't go into the military. We don't have any military in our background, right? We don't, it's just not anything that she are familiar with. I mean, I could push her to speak for herself, but I don't know. So I don't even know, like, so you enroll and then what happens, right? I think this would, for me, this is really important to understand. What is the process by which you, be, go from enrollment to becoming not only active on duty, but like in the site that you're supposed to be doing what you're supposed to be doing. So give a timeline. I joined 05, July of 05. They do a lot of background checks. You have to actually go to a center. They check your medical. I write about all this in my book, like all the steps that you have to go through. It's like you have to see the doctor. You have to do vision tests, hearing tests. All these little things, most of it was really humiliating. Um, when I joined the military, I was severely overweight. Um, I'm about 6'3", and when I joined, I was about 270. And for my age and height, I needed to be at 185. I was just, I don't know how I'm going to do that. Um, but I ended up going to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, uh, basic training is about 16 weeks. That's for every part um, 16, sorry, 12 weeks for everybody. Um, but depending on your job, right after your basic training, you go wherever your job, your job training is um, for combat engineers. Mine was four weeks. Um, there's some schools that are a year. Like if you do chemical, that school is a year and a half. But the thing is, is your contract doesn't start until that year and a half is done. So you're actually in almost a year and a half before your contract even begins. <laughs> That's kind of like the um, elephant room. Yeah. yeah. 
after my 16 weeks were done, I ended up taking a couple weeks leave coming back home. But the thing is, in basic training, I actually lost 60 pounds in those 16 weeks. My family didn't recognize me at all. I wasn't that weight for a very long time. And after those two weeks, I was shipped to Germany. So that's where my unit is. Um, I go through and processing for like a couple of weeks to get to know everything. And then we just do our daily jobs. We, it's like training or checking on equipment, things like that. It's, it's different every day. There's really no standard day on what it is unless you go to on deployment. Then it really changes. You start really doing your job. Got it. Got it. So once, once you finish basic training and then you go th basic training and then whatever additional training you need for whatever job you have enrolled to do, or you've selected to do, then you're on the clock, right? Before then, I assume that you're like, you can change your mind and be like, no, I'm leaving. Or I mean, nope. you can't. Nope. You sign, you sign the contract you're on for those times you're in basic training. And then whatever, how many years you signed up for. Well, what if you can't finish basic training? They recycle you. You go to the next group that's behind them. So oh. there's about, depending on the unit, there's like nine different, nine different classes going on. And they're like two weeks apart. So if you fix something, the class that's behind you, you go back to where they're at and you redo that part again. If you mess up there again, they recycle you again. So if you're in, if you're miserable in basic training, then it's potential that you will be miserable for like a year just to, if you keep getting recycled. Yeah. And then there, there's a lot of guys in basic training that will fake injuries or issues and try to get medically discharged. There's usually like one or two that are like that. We had one guy, he was continually, he was really trying to get out and not after basic training, I never really know what happened. He just, they just kept recycling him. No, they're spending the money to train you. They're not going to just let you go. So, wow, that's, I mean, that is a job unlike any other, where it's, you sign up and you don't really know what you're signing up for. But once you sign up, you can't get out. No. You sign the contract and, yeah, you stay in for that long. It depends on you on if you want to be miserable or not. If you want to be the dirtbag, yeah, you just get like deduction and pay. You get deduction and rank. Mm -hmm. You can put in the worst jobs possible. Yeah, your life could be as miserable as you want it to be if you'd want to. Sure, sure, sure. But I didn't realize that you there was no out until you're done with however many years you signed up to do, and that starts when you actually complete your bait like your. Your, the 12 weeks of basic training plus your job training. So if you spend three years in basic training, you're still not done. You know, the, the clock starts ticking once you're out of all of your training and then you're actually like on the job once you actually start. Wow. Okay. Woo, so you went to Germany. There was work to be done in Germany, but that was not, that's, and that's active duty, but it's also not, on the ground where the fighting is correct correct some some jobs become attachments especially combat engineers they get attached to infantry units we were actually one of the very last combat engineer units so 
there was literally 500 of us and we would all stay together. Usually uh, 20 of them are attached to an infantry unit. Oh, usually they'd split you up and you'd be attached to different units, but you yourself was were in a unit of combat engineers. Yeah, so um, yeah, we're one of the very last battalions um, to, uh, to actually be by ourselves. And um, when we went for our first deployment, we were in our own area and we actually had a couple of infantry units that had engineers with them and they would come to us and be with us. Right now, I'm not sure if there's any more battalions. I know my battalion that I was with, the 9th Engineers, is gone now. The unit disbanded uh, five years ago or something like that, probably more than that. Um, so I'm not sure if there's any more, like, actually engineer battalions anymore. How, so then how does that work? So you're in Germany, and that's clearly not where you're... I'm assuming I could be wrong. I've never, I haven't been in Germany a long time. Um, <laughs> that's not where the, you know, dis, uh, disarming IEDs is happening. What, when do you get sent to, you know, when did you and your, in your battalion get sent to, to active, um, to active combat? Yeah. So we did our training in Germany. Um, there's two bases out there in the middle of the woods. It's Grafenveer and Hohensfeld. We would do our training there, but the thing was is that we would do our training in the middle of winter time, and we're training in the middle of winter when we're going to be in, in the desert over 100 degrees. Yeah, so I mean, this is kind of the thing where it's like, well, it's above my pay grade, I don't get paid enough to think like this type of thing. So, <laughs> yeah, it's I talk about that in my book about just the strange things that just go on that it just doesn't make sense, and there's hundreds of other things that didn't make sense and when i got to germany we were told that we were going to be deploying soon i got to germany in fall of 05 we actually didn't deploy until the middle of 06 like nine months almost huh something like that yeah and the thing was is that we were told we were being deployed it just kept getting delayed until like one night, maybe a week beforehand, then they started saying, oh, we've got to get ready. We got sent to Kuwait. Kuwait is the staging ground for all the military forces. Mm-hmm. So from Kuwait, you go to either what, Afghanistan or Iraq or Africa. That's where, you, that's where the jump off point is. So we actually stayed a month in Kuwait. And we were wondering, well, are we going to go anywhere? Like we just got sent here and just going to stay here. And that was the that was the point I was hearing from a lot of friends that were up in the headquarters saying, yeah, we never actually had a assignment. We just came here. And that was really disturbing to me. And maybe about a month, almost a month in, they told us we were going to go to Baghdad. Uh, so that was toward the end of fall in 06, we went to Baghdad. Wow. Okay. So it was basically a full year between the time you went to Germany and the time you actually went to Baghdad. What's happening at this time? Like, are you feeling nervous? Like I just imagine myself, I would just like every day I would be just a little bit more anxious about like, what's going to happen. What's going to happen. When is it going to happen? What's going on? Like, we're not hearing anything. Um, Did you have that experience or were you kind of just like, you know what, it's going to happen. Things are going to happen when they happen. And I'm just going to do what I need to do right now. 
all of us were like that. We're just like, whoa, what's going to happen? And then they finally told us where we're going. There was already a unit there that was doing the route clearance. That's what we call it. For about three weeks, we tagged along with them to see how they did things, uh, know the area, and just learning the equipment. That equipment we didn't have in Germany, so we were actually learning on site. And it was frustrating, but, I mean, there was really nothing else we can do, so we just dealt with it. And we would do missions morning. One, one patrol would go in the morning, one would go in the afternoon, and one would go at night. There were three different teams going out. You weren't going out multiple times a day. Yeah, it was, it was multiple times different teams, but like every two or three weeks we would rotate. Um, so then we go afternoon and then you go evening, you do that for three weeks at a time. And that schedule was pretty grueling for the most part. And this is every day. Uh, we would do it six days a week. It was just a constant grind. But we knew we were making a difference from the get go. Yeah. Yeah. So what's what's the vibe like with your team or and forgive me, I don't have the right language for this. Right. So is it. Um, your, like your platoon seems like the wrong word. Is it platoon? Yeah. Okay. So what's the vibe like in your platoon? Cause you guys are, you and your team are, you know, you've got teams who are doing this thing. Other teams presumably are doing other things. Um, so what's the whole feeling like there? Are people feeling like stressed out? I assume there is some stressing out. Are people in generally good moods? Are people scared? Um, does it, what's going on at that time that you're there? And are you forming friendships or do you feel like a, a need to be distant or are you getting very close with people? So when we got there, when I got to Germany, the unit was bare. There was nobody in the battalion. Um, it was just forming back up because a lot of people left the military. So they're reforming this. There was other bases in germany and they were asking guys hey do you want do you want to deploy do you want to go to this unit so a lot of guys in germany said all right yeah we'll go we'll go to schweinfurt that's where i ended up being stationed so we'll go to schweinfurt my basic training was the first batch of new recruits that went to schweinfurt and maybe about a month and a half every two weeks new guys would come in i actually knew a lot of guys that went to germany with me because they were in basic training Nine of them ended up coming to my platoon. Uh, actually, yeah, nine of them came to my company. So I already had some friendships, but then the friendships grew and grew and grew, especially with the guys that were already there. Yeah, we, we got to know each other. I mean, yeah, if, like after work, yeah, we go hang out in our barracks rooms. I mean, it builds a camaraderie. Yeah, but when we got there, we were kind of like, this is all brand new. All the training that we did really isn't the same thing as what we're doing here. Um, and it was just really kind of learning on the job. But the thing was, is that a lot of, a lot of us were like, yeah, what are we going to do? But we're like, well, there's nothing really we can do. We just got to roll with what we have. And we made the best of it. We learned on the job. Some lessons were harder than others, but we learned from them. And just the psychological turn of it all is really remarkable on how a lot of us just kept it together i think just us being together and knowing who we were and having our each other's backs that's what kind of made it all yeah let's do this
that I think that's what I'm trying to get at, which is like you're forming connections and obviously you have to lean on each other. Otherwise you're just an, you know, one, an Island in the entire ocean, but I'm getting the sense and correct me if I'm wrong, that th there were, there were things that were stressful. And then there were times when it was like not stressful. Is that right? Like it wasn't nonstop 24 seven barrage. It was, look, we're going out to do this thing. And this is stressful because we don't know what's going to happen. But when we're back at, you know, at our, and we're sitting in our barracks and we're relaxing for the evening, then things are not stressful. Or am I wrong about that? Our unit in Baghdad was the number one unit in the area. We controlled all of the Western side of Baghdad on the West side of the Euphrates. That was our job. We controlled that area. Everybody knew us. Everybody knew who we were. We were the only people that had the vehicles that we had. So people knew what we were and what we were doing. Us going five miles an hour down the road, some units would come up behind us and they would tag along with us until we went off their route. They knew what we were doing. Our deployment was hectic. Uh, we were there for 15 months. Our unit alone, in those 15 months found 126 IEDs. That's not including the ones that have blown up on us or the fake ones we found. We were getting hit every other day um, or finding something every other day. So when you when you say you're getting hit, does that mean your your vehicles were getting hit every day or like every other day? Yeah. Okay. Or we're you were finding something, you're getting out and looking at something and you're like, oh, that's a problem. We're either finding something or we're getting hit with an IED or we get small arms fire or we find something fake. Yeah, we. I don't think we ever went more than three days without something happened. And if it was more, if it got to that point, we were really kind of worried. So going back to Shilashi's question, I mean, you're just constantly under duress, right? You're constantly stressed out because if, you know, either you're looking for something and you're finding them, or you find something fake and that's stressful, or you're getting hit. But then also if it's quote, too calm, you're like, something is going down. So you're constantly on alert. Did it feel like, because you said you're learning on the job. Did it feel like you were not getting direction? Did it feel like the people in the higher ranks, those higher pay grades, like they knew what they were doing and they were, you know, just, trying to mold you in a certain way like what was your connection and your platoon's connection to the higher-ups let's say we had no connection oh we depended on ourselves to get things done we we would get blown up a lot our vehicles would be damaged sometimes those vehicles wouldn't be able to go our mechanics team was beyond immaculate they they would take a vehicle that would be blown up in the morning. The next day, the vehicle would be back up and running like it never happened. These guys would work tires, tirelessly through the night to get the vehicle done because they knew if we didn't have the right equipment, that we would be dead. They were, <laughs> I, I love these guys so much that I get disgusted with civilian mechanics that I deal with every day. <laughs> like, I'm like, like, what do you mean it's going to take you? three days to replace the air conditioner. I worked with people who rebuilt armored vehicles in less than 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I had a door that my 
one of the my side doors to my car it took them a month and a half to fix and i'm like you got to be kidding me i i had guys that would take a completely blown up vehicle and get it up and going their next day oh, and hilarious. you have like a constant like you're always have the winning card where you're yeah. like you know what this is this is unacceptable for anything <laughs> over 24 hours if our mechanics didn't have these parts or didn't have these things, they would go find it. Our unit was so high up on, on the, I guess, the totem pole that we had first priority over everything. If we needed something, another unit had to give it to us. Halfway, do, halfway through our deployment, the military had these upgrades to the vehicles that we originally had. We were the first unit in the United States military to get those vehicles wow we we had to drive all the way to camp anaconda to get them and the engineers at anaconda were like oh why are you guys getting them like well we're in the middle of baghdad you're in, out here in anaconda where you might find one ied in like six months while we're finding one every other day like it just was a constant thing wow i look back at it now and sometimes i wonder like how we did it it was just such a close-knit group of guys that we knew that we we only had each other yeah. Um, how difficult it got. I mean, I've been blown up twice, but I've had friends that have been blown up three, four times. Um, I've had some friends that didn't make it back. Um, I've had guys had severe injuries. And as the deployment went on, we had less and less guys. So those days off were less and less. I mean, we might get like one day off a month. Um, and it, it was a grueling thing. And but somehow we made it, and then toward the end of the deployment, that's a whole nother thing that happened at the end of that deployment that we'll probably talk about. Yeah, well, so let's go there, right? I think you opened it up, and we're getting a good sense of what your 15 months was like. So, before we go on to that story, I would just curious so, when you're done with your 15 months, are you done? No, I signed up for four years, so my contract started. 05 and it wouldn't until what 09 so so you so you went to germany that's the beginning of your contract in 05 and then you went to baghdad in 06 and so 15 months from there would say be the beginning of 08 uh, the end of 07 we left oh, end of 07 okay um and so you still have two more years on your contract yeah so the entire unit goes back to germany guys if their contracts are getting done they'll leave every soldier is required to be in one area for two years so guys if they've been in germany for those two years they'll go somewhere else um, me i was in that window where my two years were coming up i was going to go somewhere else and the wind that i was catching that was going to be sent to fort hood I did not want to go to Fort Hood. I knew stories of Fort Hood. This is before all the Fort Hood stuff ever actually. Mm, yeah. Um, the the engineers that we had that attached to us were from Fort Hood. They were saying, don't go to Fort Hood. After after um, the deployment, a lot of those soldiers came to Germany because they said, stay in Germany. So that's what I did. I ended up reenlisting. I reenlisted for like three years, but that three years doesn't tack on to your regular contract it's from when you re-enlist so i had a window i technically only added like seven months so you um, you found that worth it 
Yeah. Because it's not suddenly seven years. You're like doing the math there and you're like, is it worth tacking on seven months if I don't go to Fort Hood? Yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. ended up staying in Germany. Um, I the, my, the mindset of it all was like, I'd rather get screwed by people I know than people I don't know. Fair. <laughs> it's far less likely that you would get screwed by people you know because you know them. Yeah. Change is difficult for a reason. And part of it is, you know, even if it's not the greatest situation, it's a situation you know. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So I've got this straight. So you re-enlisted. Everyone's deployment is actually at 12 months. We were coming up on that 12 months and I got reassigned in my company. They were taking me away from my platoon and were going to make me the armor of the company. I did not want to leave my guys. Um, but at the same time, I talk about... It was actually a godsend. Uh, I, all of us were stressed out. I was stressed out. I was going through a lot of things during that time uh, with family back home. And I was like, well, I'm glad I'm not going to be out every day. But at the same time, I didn't want to leave my my friends. I didn't want to leave my guys. Why, why do they have to stay and I have to go? So that was coming up at the 12 months. And then I thought about it, you know what? The 12 months are coming. I'm not going to be gone that long. Well, that 12 months came around and we were not getting ready to leave. Uh, they told us um, we're going to stick around for uh, another month. We're like, all right, well, we'll stick around another month. Another month came around. Uh, the month was coming we weren't getting ready to leave. Uh, they said, oh, we're, we're going to be here for another three weeks. Like, this is not sounding good. All, at this time, this was the height of the Iraq war, and they were extending um, units. There was, at this time, there was an Alaskan unit that did their 12 months, went back to Alaska. There was a general at the bottom of the plane. When they arrived in Alaska, they said, get back on the plane, you're going back. Oh my gosh. They went there another three months and they ended up actually losing one or two more soldiers during those three months. And we were like, oh my God, we're getting that same treatment. Well, those three weeks went by. We weren't getting ready to leave. There was no one coming to replace us. It says, oh, you're going to, we're going to be here another month and a half. And that ended up being 15 months. And everybody was so disgusted by this because we just couldn't believe it. <laughs> we stuck it out. We had a unit come in they were we were training them we were kind of like okay okay um they were cycling us out we were in kuwait we weren't leaving kuwait we were there for maybe about another week and we're like this is getting there we're just waiting for the day to say oh we're gonna go back i was like all right we're going back to germany i'm like are you sure about this <laughs> we, arrive, we arrive in germany and I was one of the first guys off the plane and there was, and it was snowing. It was the middle of the night snowing and there was someone at the bottom of the plane. And I'm like, Oh my God, this guy is going to say, get back on the plane. We get closer. It ends up being a Colonel. I never met the guy. Um, and he says, welcome home guys. And that was kind of like, Oh shit. <laughs> like heart racing. Yeah. Um, and I was so stressed out 
I ended up getting sick. And this is when the swine flu was around. Mm-hmm. When we got back, guys were getting it. Some guys got it heavier than others. I got a, li- a like a small case of it. And I got like sick coming from that hundred degree to the middle of winter. Sure. <laughs> it was just like a shock to your system. Everybody couldn't take it. Um, so some guys got quarantined for like weeks. I, I may have been like sick for maybe about four or five days, but yeah, that, that was another thing that we had to deal with when we came back. But uh, yeah, so yeah, we're back in Germany and it's kind of like a month resting period. Um, it's usually guys, well, we do a lot of things. We do medical, we do housing, we do paperwork, things of that. And they're usually half a days. Well, those half a days are gone and we haven't been drinking for 15 months so guys would go out and just drink their lives away and then have to come the next morning to like a briefing or whatever. And there would always be one guy that would puke in the middle of the briefing of all Rome and be like, ah, oh, well, I guess. We're- <laughs> so yeah, going outside and then that half day is gone and then it's back to drinking again. And then that would happen for a month. It's just a constant. like. Wow. All right. So now you're back in Germany. It's. Baghdad weather when you leave and it's dry and it's not cold <laughs> there at all. And then you come back to Germany in the winter and it's, yeah, it's winter, right? So you've got people getting sick. Uh, our mom loves to say that every illness, like the cold or the flu or whatever, is basically caused by the change in the weather. So she would be extremely gratified to hear this story. <laughs> A whole bunch of people got off the plane and they went from like 100 degrees to 10 degrees and everyone got sick. It must be the change in weather. The one time that she's right. Yeah, I know. About that. Uh, well, and I would I would say it's not, it's not largely the change in weather, right? But to be at such a high level of stress and then just have it kind of drop, your body is exhausted. And then you're and then you're hitting your immune system and your liver with a lot of alcohol. Right. So there's a whole perfect storm there. So you talk in your book about this major tragedy. Did that happen before you were sent back to Germany or are we skipping over something? Uh, we had two incidences where we lost soldiers. One was Christmas Day of 06 and the other was three months later to the day in March of 07. I talk about in my book about Christmas Day and a lot of the wrong that happened and a lot of the shouldn't have been going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The one major issue that we had was no unit was out on mission Christmas Day except us. And we are the people that are supposed to clear the roads and there's nobody out to clear the roads for. That was a big issue that was going on before we even went out on mission Christmas day. And um, it was a night mission and uh, we ended up losing three soldiers and a lot of things went wrong during that time. That was the most I've ever felt expendable in my life. And a lot of the other guys felt the same way. And that point, I lost trust in everything. That's mm. out of my relationships. Well, 
not really relationships. I would prevent relationships from happening, so to say. But the only people I ever trusted were the guys that I was actually out there with. That was for a very long time. Those were the only people I ever trusted. And coming back to when we were coming back to Germany, a lot of the medical was about that. <laughs> they, they gave us a questionnaire and they started rushing me through all these people. Like, are you okay? Are you fine? Or this or that? And I'm like, okay, yeah, what, what's the whole deal about? And they're like, well, every question you answered is a red flag for PTSD. I'm like, okay, um, all right. <laughs> uh, well, well, what do you want me to do about it? Uh, so they would like have us see people and we were going through our medical. We, they gave us like all our records and this huge red, huge red dot on the top of the envelope. And I had one on mine and I'm like, what the hell is this red dot? I'm looking around, looking around. There's some guys that have this red dot on their envelope and I'm trying to stop some of the medical people that are there i'm like hey what's this red dot and like oh we can't tell you. you you'll you'll find out whatever i'm like uh no i want to know what the hell this red dot is i ended up finding this private and i'm like hey no one's telling me what this red dot i mean like, you and me are by ourselves what is this red dot and they're like oh that's um for your you show high levels of P ptsd and i'm like well you could have put something else than a big red dot on my sure. You could at least put a smiley face or something on it. Trick me into not being freaked out about this. Yeah. So I was forced to see psychiatrists. I just never really wanted to talk about it. Like, I don't want to talk about it. I'm fine. Some guys went the therapy route and went through medications, but those guys were like, became shells of themselves emotionless like zombies and I'm like, I do not want to be like that and I when I wrote my book I went through all my medical paperwork I even found the paperwork where they were demanding me that I had to go see therapists um, <laughs> and I'm like nope I'm not going I'm not going I don't care what you're going to do I'm not going and uh, they're like alright was it distrust at that point or was it pride what was what was stopping you from was it denial it wasn't denial so you knew you're like yes i have ptsd it's very clear i don't yeah i was more like i do not want to be like them i don't want to be a shell of my i will i just that's that's something i can't do i'll figure it out on my own <laughs> Uh, and it took me years to actually figure it out on my own after I left the military. What would you attribute this zombie-like state to? Was it the therapy or is it the meds? Like, where did where did you see the 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 meds? The meds. Okay. They say, "Hey, take this medication. You know, mellow you out." I had one friend took the medication. He became increasingly violent, really bad outbursts. And this was nothing like him. And I'm like, dude, we grabbed the medication. We looked at the side effects. And the, yeah, the side effects were like moments of rage, just anger. And I'm like, dude, you need to get off of this. This is not you. 
and he's like it took it took us a, like a day or two to finally get to him about it and he's like you know what i'm not I'm done i'm not gonna take this anymore and he became his normal self again he's like i don't know what that was it's like i, I, I don't want to do that i don't and i I even have the paperwork saying that I refuse to do this, even though they tried to help me, I refuse to do it. I'm like, I don't care. I'm better than being in that kind of state. <laughs> so it's just. Wow. Yeah. Gosh, I, so my sister does a lot of work in neuropsych um, and, and um, mental health, particularly on the medication side. So I'm really curious what you think about that, because it seems like the therapy part. Okay. Good we can debate all day and night about what the value of therapy is. If I were, if I were looking at, well, I am looking at the situation from the outside, right. It seems like there's some negligence here, right. To just put people on meds and not be paying attention to how it's affecting them and not be following up and not be monitoring, right. That someone would become violent. That's a real problem. I mean, I would say, I would say, the problem is, you know, what you would hear from every single doctor on the planet is every single patient is different, right? So th those side effects, you know, angry outbursts, that may not, that's not going to happen with every single person, but you have to be aware that it is going to happen with, with some patients and that, or some clients. So you have, like, you can't just do this one-stop shop, like this is what everyone takes. And the unfortunate part of that is there were people who really needed help. Like Eric, I would say you, you needed help. You had PTSD and it, you weren't in denial, but if you're going to be treated like, you know, just this blanket, like you're going to take these meds, you're going to do this stuff. It's like, they're just using metrics, right? They're just checking the box. Like, did he take meds? Did we do what we were supposed to do? So we're not liable for this guy anymore Yeah. versus yes. really looking at you as a patient, a person and saying, what do we need to do for him? Would you agree with that, Eric? Yeah, I do agree with that. And the months after we came back, that's when guys are rotating out. So guys that are leaving the military, guys that are going to different units, they're all going. The guys that stayed, all the guys that I actually went to basic training with stayed in my platoon. So I had those guys and a lot of us just cling to each other. We would talk all the time. Well, you they say like misery loves company, right? So it's like, if you, I would really love to go back to this idea of expendability because that is not, you just had this trauma which, so we talk about PTSD as post-traumatic stress disorder. So you had this trauma of losing three soldiers, but the feeling of expendability is also very traumatic. Mm. Nobody cares. And that, that becomes complex trauma. That's like trauma, that realization is something that you live with every single day. I can imagine that you're like the only other people who understand are the other people who feel expendable. That's this group of guys. While on the deployment, how we coped with getting blown up and losing guys and guys getting injured, 
is we would laugh about it. As disturbing as that sounds, if we got blown up one day after mission, we would laugh and talk about it. We would even say, hey, you remember the time when you got blown up? I'm like, well, there's been multiple times you got to be more specific, more specific. <laughs> but we would just that's how we got through it. We would laugh about it and talk about it. And it was just I could see how now I can see how kind of disturbing it is. But that was what we had to do. We had to get through it that way. I actually think it's quite common. It is very common and actually healthy. I mean, people cope however they cope. And and that's actually a response very often is to is to laugh about something that's too intense to actually really wrap your hands around in the moment, given also that like you're going to have to do it again the next day. It's not like, oh, that happened one time and you're like, oh, that was awful. And oh, my God. Right. And then, no, you have to keep doing it and keep doing it. So what is your best defense mechanism? Your best defense mechanism is to create some distance and make it. It's not funny, but to make jokes about it, a lot of people making jokes and laughing about things that are very um, scary and sad is a very common thing that people do. And on top of all this about getting blown up, our unit actually had a two blow up policy. So to explain that is, is that if we were out on mission, we got blown up, we would continue mission. Uh, we would have to continue if we were okay. But sometimes our the vehicle that did get hit wouldn't be operational. So we would have to tow that vehicle back in and get a new vehicle and then go back out. And during this recovery, that's a couple hours, depending on where you're at. And so, yeah, you go back out. And then if you got blown up again and you had to recover, well, then we could stop mission. You could come back. That was just that that happened the first time I ever got blown up. The first time I ever got blown up was the Super Bowl for the Bears versus the Colts. Ended up missing that game. Well, the Bears also got blown up, so. (laughs) And missed that game, yes. (laughs) I actually had, my vehicle got blown up, and it was, uh, we had to recover it. And I was given the choice by my lieutenant. He really didn't need me anymore. He says, hey, you can stay here. I know you're from Chicago. You can watch the game. I said, you know what, sir, if I don't go back out there, I'm not going to be able to go back out there again. Uh, uh, have me go and put in the, another vehicle. So one of the vehicles that we have is actually called the Buffalo. If you ever see the first Transformers movie, mm-hmm. there's a scene where Optimus Prime is battling a Decepticon on a highway. Mm-hmm. That Decepticon is the Buffalo. Oh, oh. At- it has this huge hydraulic arm and it could it could hold about like 250 pounds i believe something like that and we use that to dig to find ieds we're the only unit that ever has that vehicle so there and it's huge so there's a lot of seats in there i'm like you know what i'll go in the buffalo i'll go in the buffalo like all right if you want to go in go in i was like i well i have to go back out so we go back out we end up uh finding something on the middle of the road so we take the buffalo up there and it's this huge bag which just looks heavy looks out of place we pick up the bag with the buffalo and all of us it's a big trash bag and all of a sudden these two huge artillery rounds fall out of it and hit the street well i saw that i stood up 
and ran to the back of the vehicle. I don't know where I was running to. It was more like a just a response. <laughs> yeah, a defense response, right? It's, you're not you're not operating from your intellectual mind. You're just like in a fight or flight. You're in a flight mode, right? So, so I, my staff sergeant is like, Pereira, where are you going? I'm like, I don't know. I just got up and ran. <laughs> like he's like, after, just after just being blown up a couple hours earlier, like yeah, it was just a reaction that I had. I laugh about it now. I'm like I'm like, all right. So I got back in my seat and I'm like, all right, let's let's do this. I I had to go back out because mm-hmm. I think I would just be so nervous just to even want to do anything. Sure. And I, he had to get over it. So you, t- I mean, you talk about getting blown up almost like it's an everyday thing, right? Like the way that you speak about getting blown up is really amazing to me. You had lost soldiers. You had lost, you know, platoon brothers and, and things like that. What made Christmas day so different in terms of how you took it um, than previous times that something had happened and you had lost a soldier uh, well three fr- besides being three friends a lot of things went wrong it's uh, also the first time i ever shot my weapon at someone yeah just a lot of things went wrong uh, since we were the only ones out there we needed help and nobody wanted to come out and help us even our own unit didn't even want to come out and help us. And we literally sat there for hours guarding the vehicle. Some things went wrong. The IED ended up hitting the gas tank. So the vehicle caught on fire. And we were able to put it out, but we were trying to get it out of the area. Well, the friction of everything, how the vehicle works the fire started back up and we didn't have any more fire extinguishers. We literally sat there for hours. Two of our, two of the guys were trapped inside. We couldn't get them out. So we literally sat there for hours watching the vehicle burn with them in it. It took me years to describe this feeling or what was actually going on was the smell. The smell is unbearable. I will never forget the smell. And just being out sitting there and watching them burn was just, my trust went out to everything. It wasn't until the next morning, our first sergeant was getting heated because no one was helping us. Our first sergeant literally woke everybody up, said, get your ass up or go into the gate. Well, in order to leave the gate, you need paperwork from the, from the military saying you could leave. The people that guard the gates in Baghdad, they're Ugandan soldiers. <laughs> Our first sergeant literally went up to the gate and said, open the fucking gate. <laughs> and they opened the gate. Here's your paperwork. Yeah. And uh, they came out and got us. He got his own team to recover the vehicle. And they finally came. I was a gunner for that patrol, so I had to be awake because you never know what was ever going to come up on us since we were sitting there for hours. And seeing them come in was just like a relief. But it took like another hour, hour and a half 
for them to actually recover the vehicle. I got a little bit of rest, but yeah, it was a long trek home. We were all the way up in the northern part of Baghdad. Very dangerous territory. Just us getting out of the vehicle, it was just like so much relief. And, and they told us, hey, drop your gear, go to the talk, uh, go to the, well, the headquarters. So there's like a meeting room in the headquarters. <laughs> the funny thing is that our unit wasn't helping, didn't like send anybody out. I don't remember our commander being in that room. I remember uh, the brigade, the big brigade commander, two chaplains, and like a CID. So like they're the incident report guys were talking with us and they had us fill out paperwork of the incident, what we remember. And then what was so messed up was it's morning and they said, Hey, um, we're going to need you to go back out today, back to that area. And I'm everyone in the room was like, are you fucking kidding me? And oh, we need to go back out there. We need to assess the, the blast site. We need to assess the area. And really, like, you're out of your fucking mind. Well, our higher-ups kind of fought it. They gave us a day off, but we had to go back out there the next day. Oh, my God. And going out on that mission, I don't think my ass was so puckered up in my life. It was literally like my asshole was, like, shooting up into my stomach. Like, it was okay. just like... <laughs> <laughs> That's what I mean. Okay, I'm sorry for laughing yeah. at such a serious moment, but... <laughs> I laugh about it now, but, right. I mean... At that point, I was scared out of my mind and everyone else, too. Like, you're literally going to have us come back to this point. Uh, we ended up going out there, assessing the thing, and came back. What was so, I don't know, it, it wasn't like amnesia or anything. After we talked with all the higher-ups and everything, one of the guys we lost was our platoon armor. He knew weapons or more than anybody of the other guys. And... After shooting my weapon, it wasn't, when I was cleaning it, it wasn't coming apart properly. I'm like, you know what? I told my roommate, I'm like, hey, I need to go talk to so-and-so about my weapon. And he looked at me and I got up and then it hit me like, oh no, he's not here. Mm -hmm. I sat back down and I'm just like, like, fuck. Um, I guess I got to fix it myself. And yeah, it's just, it was just a toll on everybody, like. And, um, yeah, that's like the, the most I've ever felt expendable in my life. Wow. The taking you, the sending you back to the blast site the next day, that got me. I understand that the military has to work with, you cannot turn emotional at every turn. I understand that. But there has to still be a sense of humanity. I mean, you're still humans. And that that got me. I understood that we would have to go back there. We would have to go back the road. That road was a big hot spot. Okay. But sending us back there like right away was kind of like, really? And but every time we went back to that spot, I see the we see the blast site. I see the building where I shot the guys keeps coming back yeah it's always a quiet moment when we go down when we always went back down that road because we knew what we went through during that time and it took me years to ever even talk about that night the only time i ever talked about it was with one of the other guys that was there and when we came back to germany 
I would hang out with him and another friend of mine. We would hang out at his house. His wife lived in Germany, so we stayed at his house. We we would we never wanted to go to the bars anymore. We'd stay at his house. It was a safe place, you know. We play video games, we drink, we just have fun. And I think one night we just got emotional, and or not not emotional. I think we just had way too much to the point where we talked about that night again. Mm. And my buddy's wife was in the room while it was happening, and she knew the guys that got killed, and. I didn't notice this, but like halfway we were talking about it, she like left the room and like went away. And we just started talking about it. We were done with the story. She came back into the room and she was like bawling, crying. And she's like, I thought I would never hear that story. She's like, I literally ran into the other room and called my mom and saying they're talking about it. They're talking about it. It's like, I need to get out of there. It was just, yeah, that was the only time I ever talked about it. I talked about it again around maybe 2016 I went to a therapist to talk about it and I felt sick to my stomach I said I can't do this I can't do it and it took me a couple more years to figure out how to deal with everything I do appreciate Kosha bringing up the story and at least helping us get some context but I don't know that we or our listeners are going to be really well served by just hearing every awful thing that you had to go through. Um, but I do, you know, you're coming back to Germany and you've been red dotted. So you, you're showing some signs of uh, PTSD and you're turning down therapy and intervention from the military. So you're basically saying, I don't want any help from my employer at this point. Which kind of makes sense, I think, given given the story you just told. It's sort of like, they don't really care about me. You've been through enough there to feel like they don't really care about me. So this is just another check the box thing that they have to do. I'd rather just figure it out on my own. So you finish your time in the military. Then what happens? At the time when you sign up for four years, you sign up four years active duty but you're also four years of inactive reserve. So basically you're out of the military. You just have to report like once a year saying, Hey, I'm here. And after that, I'm completely separated from the military. But since I reenlisted, um, it was only like maybe three and a half years, three years. I was on in that. inactive. Okay. Yeah. There was never, I always hated going to those once a year events because they were just, they would look over your medical, look over your information, things like that. But these, but the guys that are there, they're out of the military too. And all of a sudden they want to throw their rank around and everything like that. And they become like a pissing contest. And it's just like, dude, we're all out of the military. Stop acting something important. I always hated doing, going to those things. And there was never really anything about resources or anything like that. It was just seeing how you were doing. And then they give you a check and then they say, oh, we'll see you next year when my time was coming up like the last three months I was getting a phone call an email every day every other day I would have a recruiter actually show up at my door saying hey you want to re-enlist you want to come back in active duty I'm like nope he's like well what's it gonna take I'm like well 80 grand and like maybe a Rolls Royce or something like that you know yeah and then like well we can't do that for you well I can't do anything for you either 
You asked me a question. I answered the question. It's like the, when you go to buy a car and they're like, what's it going to take to get you in this car today? And I was like, you literally have to give it to me right now and help like pay for me to take it off the lot. I'm not <laughs> interested in buying a car. I'm not interested in re-enrolling unless you're just going to give me like a million dollars a year. Yeah. Right. So, but that, that was the last three months. The day I separated from the military, I stopped the phone calls, the emails, the recruiters stopped all of a sudden. And not once during that time was I ever given like anything, hey, you know, resource center, things to help me. That disturbed me a lot. They tried so hard to get me back in rather than actually showing some kind of help. And I had uncles that were in the military. Both of them were Vietnam. I took after them. One one became, his thing was photography. He would travel the world and take pictures. That was his thing. My other uncle loved motorcycles. He would fix his motorcycles. He would go for rides. That was his thing, his way of coping. I said, well, I need to find something that helps me cope with that as well. And I actually ended up taking uh, fish keeping. I kept marine animals. I actually built my own fish tanks. I built a 600-gallon system that I had sharks and stingrays in. Um, that was my way of getting my mind off of everything. It was hard work, but it kept my mind occupied. And that was my therapy. That was my therapy for about five years. During that time, that's when, yeah, I went to the therapist. I went twice and I'm like, I'm never coming again. I cannot do this anymore. And just, I couldn't, I, and that was the first time I ever said anything about the smell. And that was just, that was it. I couldn't do it anymore. I said, you know what? I'll come back. I never did. I actually had the final breakdown in my kitchen. Like I always had like the buildup of just getting all the emotion out. And one night it just all just started pouring out and I just broke down in my kitchen. That was the start of my healing process. For about a month, I felt better just getting that emotion out. And I'm like, you know what? I got to do something else. So I started talking with a lot of the family members of the soldiers we lost. I'm like, like, how you doing? I, I talked to them before, but I was talking to them more in depth. When I would see them, I would never tell them the whole story of what happened because I wasn't sure what the military didn't tell them. Since mm. we had to fill out reports and everything like that, I wasn't sure if they were telling that. But then I heard from a friend of mine who was in headquarters saying uh, things got switched. And that kind of ticked me off. And I actually went to the family members saying, hey, what, what did they give you? What did they give you the, of the incident? And they said all they said was they gave us a piece of paper of his information, cause of death, IED, and then like a one-sentence description of what happened. I was so pissed. And I'm like, you know what? I know I signed whatever, but I'm just going to repeat what I wrote. And... I did videos. I did two videos of both of the incidences where we lost soldiers, but I didn't have like a platform to tell those stories on. I wasn't sure I wasn't going to get out there. So I just decided to write the March of 2020. I started writing and I was feeling better as I was writing. And I just started writing more and more stories, more about what was going on. And I was just feeling this is weight lifted off my shoulders. And so I, I, I said, you know what? I'm going to tell the whole story from the beginning to the end. And I 
did it for like four months. I wrote it all down nonstop. And I left every emotion on the page, every thought, every detail. I just felt so much better. I didn't have to hold in the stories anymore. I didn't have to hold in all the emotion. It's all left on the paper. And he said, you know what? I'll publish it myself. I didn't want no one to touch it. Um, I didn't want someone to come in and write their own little thing or whatever, take something out. So I published it myself. And um, it's my words, nobody else's words. I just felt just such a great relief. But then after that, it's a whole, whole nother part of my life that I'm still dealing with right now, but I'm in a better place for it. So during this time after post military, you know, when you left totally and while you were before you started writing, then even while you're writing, are you experiencing some of the triggers of being through PTSD of like, you know, what did I read recently that when you're triggered by something, you're not, you're not living in the present thinking, oh, I'm remembering that time that such and such happened. You're actually transported back to, to when that happened and your entire experience is like it was there, like it's happening to you now, right? So did you have any triggered experiences where, you know, for example, we hear people say like, oh, car backfired, but then I felt like I was being shot at. I wasn't transported back to where that was. I felt like that stuff was happening then. When I came back for like my two-week vacation or R&R, things like that, I could not drive. I would drive five miles an hour down the road and a little piece of trash on the road. I would just stop or I veer off or whatever. It got to a point where I didn't drive. I was actually walking to where I needed to go. And if I needed to go somewhere far, I had someone drive me. And even then I was still a little bit shaky. But it wasn't me like trying to veer off in the traffic, mm-hmm. try to avoid whatever. Um, for years, yeah, I had a lot of corks. Yeah, when I came back, I was like the grumpy old man. In the military, perfection is demanded. I, all right, I mean, I brought it back here into civilian life. And if things weren't perfect, then it needed to be. In the military, you're not given much leeway. It has to be perfect. And I had to learn that being here. It's not like it is over there. You have to give some leeway. And it took a, a number of years to get to that point. But yeah, I, I had a lot of corks. Being a gunner for the vehicles, I had to wear a lot of gear, like extra gear. And it was always stuff like around my neck, around my shoulders and everything. I can't wear a shirt and tie. If I wear a shirt and tie, I like start panicking and profusely. And um, (laughs) I think the only time I ever wore a shirt and tie from when I left to now was when I graduated um, from college. My mom was like, you have to wear a shirt and tie for me. And I, so I wore the shirt and tie for her, but I was miserable those like three hours mm-hmm. I had to sit there. But like, I did it. But I was just like so drenched in sweat. Sure. That's the big thing now. I still have a little bit here and there, but I'm a lot better for the last 10 years. Yeah. I don't know. I cannot imagine what it would be like to be in those kinds of high stress, constantly high stress, right? And what you had said before, which is like- High stakes. 
high stress, high stakes, nonstop, even the times when it's quiet, those that's almost more stressful because it's out of the norm. Right. So it's like, you can't relax even when it's quiet. Cause then you're like, why is it quiet? Basically this is how I'm going to categorize you and tell me if I'm wrong. The military is like, yeah, good job. See you later. And they just send, I mean, they obviously tried to get you to come back, but once you're done, they're like, well, see you later. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. And that's it. And there's no like, here, let us help you. Let us, yeah, we realize that we put you in really dangerous situations. We, you know, appreciate, there's a lot of lip service to appreciating service, but not a lot of actual appreciation of service. It That's what I'm, that's what is coming across as is like, no attention to like, what do we owe people who have literally put their lives on the line and come back with physical, emotional, and mental health scars that could last a lifetime. Yeah, I, um, the end of military ended up paying for my entire college when I got out. So that was kind of like the, I guess, the trade-off. And then when I did get my degree, the military was saying, um, come join a little bit, you know, you could get more out of the education, mm-hmm. you get your master's, you go get your doctorate. You're like, nope. No, I'm good. This was a trade-off. I gave, I signed my life away. You gave me my education. We're done. We're That's done it. Here. We're, we're done. This is the last thing. Have a good yeah. day. Um, <laughs> so yeah, but that, yeah, they were kept coming back, you know, Hey, just get a little more education. No, we're done. We're done. This is it. <laughs> I don't know very much about the military. Did you get blowback because you wrote this very raw and honest book about what happened before i wrote the book um my lieutenant that was in baghdad with me now he's um now he's higher ranking i think he's a major now so he's higher ranking in an officer's unit he wrote something on facebook about the brigade commander that was in charge of us and i publicly put on his Facebook is that I told him fuck that guy (laughs) Uh, it's like he's like that guy screwed us over a lot a couple days later I actually got a Facebook uh, message from him and says hey I heard it's like I heard you don't like me (laughs) I'm like the guy the guy was a prick but I I wrote back I'm like you know what I said he's like I got nothing to say to you I left it at that as I was writing the book, the commander, our company commander, who didn't want to help us that night on Christmas, he ended up dying of cancer while I was writing the book. And everyone on Facebook was saying, oh, a great command. I was held so hard not to say something on Facebook. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to wait. And I wrote my book, finished my book, even though I wanted him to still be alive to read it so he could read what the fuck he ended up doing to us. I announced on Facebook to everybody I served with. I, some guys knew I was writing the book because I had their names in it. So I had to get from them. So the people that were in the book, they knew it was coming out, but a lot of the, everybody else didn't know. I announced it on Facebook. I started getting friend requests from people that I knew of that I've never spoken to in my life and my units. And I didn't add any of them. 
and it's like, no, you're not going to come in here and start saying your, your two cents. And I'll, everything I said was true. So actually, I, I came out. I did actually um, a live interview. Well, I, I went live on Facebook to thank everybody for the support and everything. And that was one of the things that came up. And I said, you know, what? If, they, if somebody wants to really say something, well, then those, those are the people that are going to have to answer for what they actually did. And it ain't going to work out for them either. So if they really want to say something, then it's not in their interest to say anything. It's their interest to keep quiet. So I, I knew I would get some blowback about it. And I kind of did. I didn't care. I may have lost some friends as I wrote the book, but oh well. Um, it's their opinion. I have my opinion. That's okay. If that's the thing, maybe later on the road we'll reconnect. You know, um, I know a couple of them. We had differences of opinion, and they stopped talking to me. I'm like, okay, that's okay. Uh, I'm fine with it. But the people that have stuck with me while this is still going on, those are my true friends, the ones I talk to. The ones I that have my back, I have their back no matter what. I, I knew I knew it would happen and you know, I'll live with it. I don't care. Um I'm gonna tell the truth and if you don't like it, then okay. <laughs> yeah. So now that this book is out, what do you think is next for you? It sounds like the book was a really important piece of part of your healing. I imagine there's more to do, right? It's not like, okay, I wrote this book and now everything's fine. What sort of, where do you, where do you see yourself going next? Yeah. I, a lot of guys were saying, Oh, you got to put this story in. You got to put that story in. You're like, why don't you write a book? I, <laughs> I, I said, I can't, I can't put those stories in because a lot of the guys that are in those stories are still in the military and they're in high ranking spots. I don't want anything to ruin their career or, because stupid things come out and that that's this and that i said maybe once everybody is out i'll write another book about all the other stories that we talked about and what we did maybe i'll do that but that's probably going to be years from now are you still in therapy are you are you thinking about going if you're not are you thinking about going back or are you is your plan for ongoing you know sort of management and healing from ptsd really you've got a plan for yourself and you're going to move forward with your plan. This book was mainly my therapy, but then I started getting things about from family members of soldiers. They're like, you know, Hey, how can I help my soldier? That opened my mind up to other things. I was like, you gotta be patient. You know, it doesn't happen overnight. It took me over 10 years. That's why I said, you know what, I'll, I'll do podcasts to get the awareness out there because also though, the suicide rate for veterans has gone up again and it just continues to rise. And I do podcasts to get the awareness out there. But now I've actually seen a lot of more information. I see information on like 294. There's billboards for PTSD suicide hotlines now. Yeah. And I've, some, I've been seeing commercials too about it and it's getting out there. A couple years ago, I purchased a um, a military Humvee, and I take the Humvee to car shows, and a lot of the people that come around are veterans, and I sit there and I talk with the veterans. Some of these guys don't even talk with anybody at all, and they'll open up to me, a stranger mm -hmm. that with something that's from their past that enjoyed or something that was a big part of their life, and we talk for hours, 
and um, or they have their family and they show their family, this is what I was in, this is what I did. And just that giving back is what I do now. Um, it's getting kind of end, it's like fall now, so the car shows are kind of dying off now. So it's kind of the end of the season, but that's what I do. I get that awareness out there. It's another awesome. therapy that I do. That awesome. That is awesome. Yeah, the idea of taking your experience and and using it to help others who are in your situation, right? There's sort of like, not to say it's more gratifying, but there's something incredibly gratifying about saying, look, I went through this and I can, I can use my experience to help other people who might be struggling with the same thing. So that's, that's really awesome. And I think, you know, this, I would encourage more people who are going through anything traumatic to write or, or paint or draw or whatever that is, right. That's writing is a form of therapy. It's art therapy. And that's, you know, there are certain therapists who are trained in using those kinds of techniques to help people heal. Maybe talk therapy isn't for everyone, but writing is, is a form of like basically getting it out of your head and getting it out of your body and getting it somewhere else. Right. So I think that's so awesome. There's just a recommendation, like yeah, I, I wrote this and this has been really, really helpful for me. And now I'm using my experience to help other people deal with what they have gone through. I, I told myself I would never join the military. I ended up doing that. I would never thought in a million years I would ever write a book. I was terrible in English class. It wasn't until I went to college after the military, I had an English teacher who was a linguist and he helped me understand English and I started getting A's in English and my writing became better. And then I, I wrote a book. So, I mean, it's, it's a complete 180 from whatever I thought was ever going to happen in my life. You just never know. Yeah. So what else have you said you're never going to do? Cause then we'll just look for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably should do that a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we've got just a little bit of time left. And again, I just want to, before we wrap, I want to reiterate how much Kush and I, appreciate you sharing your story with us and trusting us with your story because you don't know us from, I mean, we're Chicagoans, so we're, we we're all know right people, other. Yeah, but still. Um, so I really, we really appreciate that and that this stuff isn't easy to talk about. So I, I mean, just even listening to it, I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. That, that's one thing I realized. I knew how difficult our job was, but when I finally started telling people what I did, seeing the expression on people's faces was kind of like okay maybe i was a little crazy maybe what i did was really out of the ordinary and that was another reason why i didn't talk about it either because hearing seeing those expressions from people oh um, yeah I bet. But the, yeah that, now i get it now i i understand it but it's just uh to help people understand it well and i think you know there's something to be said for joining the military at 19 as opposed to 29 it's it's well known that people between the ages of say 16 or 15 and 22 they have no sense of self-preservation they're very good at taking risks they think nothing's going to happen to them i don't want to get into critiquing the military right but there is a reason why i was going to say that it makes sense to recruit 18 year olds 17 18 19 year olds instead of 27 28 29 year olds when you're 27 you're like oh my god no i'm gonna die with that but when you're 19, 17 or 18 you're like 
they're they're going to train me. It's going to be fine, right? You just your brain doesn't process things the same way. Yeah. So we ask this question of all of our guests, and you get to take it whichever way you want to, right? You can talk about what advice would you give veterans? What would you give? What advice would you give your 19 year old or 18 year old self? Anywhere in between, right? What advice would you give to somebody who is kind of sitting in your shoes and like looking at looking at their life going forward or looking at where they are and saying, how am I going to make it through this? Um, the one thing I always say is to have a plan. The problem with veterans is they say they're going to get out, but they don't have a plan when they get out. Um, and then that's where the alcohol, the drugs and everything else start coming in because there is no plan in effect. I learned when I was about to leave, I was getting my plan together. I wanted to join CPD, but I actually got denied because of my hearing. I tried to join TSA. I got denied because of my hearing. So I kind of fell flat on my face when I left. I didn't, my plans went out the window. So I was taking odd jobs and then I decided you know what I'm gonna go back to school, but um, you have to have that plan. No matter if you're thinking about transitioning into something, you have to have it. Otherwise, you're just gonna end up in the middle of nowhere, and it's just not a good feeling. And you're digging that hole for yourself. I was fortunate enough to have the option to go back to school because of the military paying for it. Mm. If I told my 19-year-old self this, all this was going to happen, I would have never believed it. That's just how life is. It takes you one turn after the other. You never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I had no idea that the TSA had a hearing requirement because it seems like TSA agents don't listen. <laughs> no, I'm re- <laughs> I was like... Maybe he's saying his hearing was too good. And that's, that's possible. why he got turned away from the TSA. No offense to any TSA agent that's listening, but I get, you know, your point is well taken, which is like, have a plan and, and not just be like, okay, I'm going to go do this thing because you might not be able to go do that thing. So spending some time, like figuring out what comes next for you. And we see that a lot. It's veterans or just people who retire, whether they've been doing something for 10 years or 50 years, it's like, they don't know what they're going to do after they're done doing that thing that they've been doing. And then they're lost. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the military is like, when you're with us, we're, you're totally with us. But, you know, knowing that when you're, when you're out, the resources kind of don't get discussed and stuff. So really having to take control of your own future and your own plan because you can't rely on the military saying like oh we'll help you we'll sit down and help you with your plan your future like you really have to own that plan yourself yeah i always had the motto of uh you can't rely on the military uh because you'll get trapped a lot of guys end up becoming becoming so attached that they can't get out I had one guy in my platoon, his wife had lupus and the military was paying for all of her medication and he left the military. He would not be able to help her. Yeah. 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 Don't become dependent on the military. (laughs) And some guys end up in that situation where they can't leave. Um, I was fortunate enough to be in the situation where I wasn't dependent on them. I could actually leave and help myself. 
Yeah, that's, that's very good advice. So our last question is um, just something we ask every single person. What are examples of your familect, which is words, phrases, made up language that only means something in your small circle? It could be with your family, your mom, um, with your military family, your platoon brothers, like your work, your work family. Do you have any examples of, of some of those words and phrases, the lingo? Uh, one word, well, the one phrase I came up with every military person knows is uh, blue falcon. You do not want to be a blue falcon. The blue falcon is the person that is dependent on themselves, only looks out for themselves. Oh, he'll do anything to get himself to look good. Yeah, or he goes above and beyond to look good for everybody else. You're that blue falcon because there's no... It sounds so good. It does it, sound really it good. It sounds like very um, regal and important. Yes. But yeah. it's not. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Do not be a blue falcon. Wow. That's what I'm going to say to people, and they will not understand what I'm saying. I know. Isn't that awesome? You can just <laughs> like totally insult people to their face. Blue falcon they over here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I don't think you can say it like that. Oh, oh yeah, because that is very clearly. It sounds bad, but you could be like, "Oh my God, what a blue falcon you are!" <laughs> and they won't know if you're saying it like, "Wow," if you're like, "Wow." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Wow, that's so right. cool. That's awesome. Oh well, we are we're basically at the end of our time, so, and it's gone fast. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking to us and sharing your story. We're so we're so grateful. Um particularly more and more as we have guests who are not our family and not our friends that they trust us with telling some really tough stories and, and hearing tough things about their lives. So thank you so much. We really appreciate it. No, I appreciate you guys. That I can't believe it's been two hours. Your story is phenomenal and, and so important. I think, you know, I've been, I had been looking for someone to talk about their military service PTSD because it's something we hear about so much, but I struggle to find somebody. And I think that it's just this, it's this veil of secrecy that, you know, that just gets perpetuated. So the fact that you wrote this book and by the way, let's plug the book because yes. that is fantastic. It is called A Bomb Hunter's Story, My Life Clearing the Roads of Iraq by Eric Herrera. And we will post this on our social media platforms and on our website and everything in the liner notes and the show notes. Um, your story is important and we're really, really glad that you're here to tell it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm also on TikTok. I do a lot of military jokes. My platform on there has grown over the past year. Um, it's uh, Sapper720, so S-A-P-P-E-R 720. Got it. We will tag you and put that in our notes. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Eric. Have a great awesome. day. Thanks. Bye.